it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. You may be seated. Just a little background, we've been studying the book of Acts and the perils of Paul, actually. It started back quite a ways. This, he had uh, five trials already in front of people, various groups. He also always gave a good testimony, a good witness. He shared the truth, shared his life story. But Jesus had predicted, and neither an angel or Jesus came that night and told them that he would be brought to Rome. He would be testifying in Rome. And that's where he's headed now, just as God had foretold. So as we've been going through this, all through we see many different characters, but we know who the director is. The director is God. And at this last hearing, this last trial, we'll go back to verse 30 of Acts 26. And here's what these people declared, or their verdict was. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or punishment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, wicked men keep accusing Paul of false things, that they can't get anything to stick because Paul is a righteous man. And he hasn't done anything wrong. But Paul did appeal his case to Caesar, and therefore he would be sent to Rome. And in that particular time, the mode of transportation would be by ship. And as I mentioned in the past, there were two types of ships. They called the ships that would stay close to the coast, coasters. And they were kind of like or Greyhound buses, they'd run around, pick up cargo and passengers, zigzagging around. But they did not go in the high seas. They were smaller ships, they were not built to endure the high seas. And then there were the bigger ships. And what would happen is these coaster ships would pick up Many items, many people, many passengers in these smaller ports where the big ships couldn't go. And then they'd meet up with these bigger ships with the deep harbor ports and they'd transfer the cargo and the prisoners to that ship and then they would go across the open seas. I know when I was in Mexico, we helped the guy get his boat, he had repaired it, and it was in shallow water, so we helped him get it out in the deeper water, and he said, I'll give you a boat ride later. And I thought, oh, that'll be neat. So he came in, and it was about the size of, I don't know, a little bigger than the charter boats we have in Lake Michigan. So we're going around inside the reef, and I thought, this is pretty cool, you know. And he went outside the reef. 
he was letting me drive, and he could see my eyes were in my stomach. And he said, don't worry, this boat is rated for a number eight seas. I said, what's this, a seven, a seven and a half? He said, no, this is about a two. So, <laughs> you know, it can get rough. And if anybody's watched where they do the, this crab fishing show that they have on, they're getting these king crabs in Alaska, and you see how those boats are tossed around. It's amazing how powerful the sea can be. But Paul, he's going he's to be going by boat, and the boat will not take a direct route to Rome. They will zigzag around picking up cargo and people. If, uh, I don't have a screen to show his course, but that's what it was. And these boats, these coasters, on a good day, because they were sailboats, if they had a good wind, they could make about 40 miles a day on an excellent wind more. Unfavorable winds, it'd be nothing or they could lose ground. So it could be anywhere in between, zero or 40. And also, as a side note, on the Mediterranean Sea, in the winter months, it got very dangerous to travel. At mid-September, the storms would start. And it would start to get hazardous on the open seas. By mid-October, it was very dangerous, and only the largest and the most sturdy ships would go out. By mid-November, you were a fool if you tried going out. Because chances are you would be destroyed by the winds and the storms. So let's get into the text after that background. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Artemathium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. Again, here we see it. It's going along the, the, the coast and the ports of Asia. And Paul is under the elite guard because Paul was a Roman citizen, which were considered elite. So he's under this guy from the Augustan cohort. Again, an elite regiment of the Romans. A guy named Julius. As we continue on, it says, We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus of Macedonia from Thessalonica, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra of Lycia. So the first day, if you, uh, they covered about 40 miles. The next day now they're saying... It's getting rougher and rougher. Sailing is slowing down. But this Julius guy, he treated Paul kindly. He even let Paul go to his friends. And what it's referring to here, Paul had friends, brothers in the Lord at these different places because many of these places where these missionary trips had taken place earlier. 
And remember, for this guy to let Paul go freely with his friends is a big deal. Because the Jews want a death sentence for Paul. And if you're in charge of a prisoner and that prisoner escapes, whatever sentence that was for that prisoner would be given to you. So this guy really had to trust Paul. And they're zigzagging around, picking up cargo, picking up persons along the coast. Again, 40 miles on a good day or nothing on a bad day. Now, Myra, they found an Egyptian ship, which would now be a larger open sea vessel. A vessel that would be able to do a more direct to Italy because they have collected the grain and everything they needed as they were going. It tells us there, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sindus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Samon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhaven, near which was the city of Lassia. They're on the ship from Alexandria, which would uh, be from Egypt. And this was a big ocean vessel. But as you can see, they're running into the winter weather already, the storms, the unfavorable winds. And they're not making good timing. They're being delayed. But because these are cargo ships, and you make your money by delivering more cargo and more often, the captains and the crews would want to keep going. It says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over. And the fast gives us a good time frame. The fast refers to the Day of Atonement, which would be mid-October. Remember what I said earlier, it got very dangerous on the open seas by mid-October. They're already in the one month into the dangerous sailing season, and that only gets worse every day. And again, by mid-November, only a fool would venture out, even in the largest of crafts. So Paul, he understands the Mediterranean. Paul was an educated man, not only in theology, in probably all areas of life. He says, Paul advised him, saying, Sir, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only for the cargo and the ship, but also for our lives. So Paul was talking to the centurion, saying, hey, you know, we should stop here, harbor here. It's a dangerous time of the year to be out there. And we're not told if this was by divine revelation or just by the wisdom that Paul had understanding sailing on the Mediterranean. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, 
the majority decided to put out to sea from there and to chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So these guys, again, I'm sure profit played part of it. Part of it was it wasn't a really good harbor to spend the winter. These guys would be trapped on board for two or three months. And if it's kind of a iffy harbor, they would be fighting storms, battling storms, being very uncomfortable in the ship, even in harbor. And if the wind came up too bad, the ship could even be destroyed. So they're deciding, do we stay here and have a miserable winter, or do we go to Crete, where there's a really nice harbor, that we can stay more comfortable? Think of that, how life must have been back then for these sailors and these people traveling. It's kind of like the cruise ships when the COVID first hit. You can't get off for three or four months on a one-week cruise. But that was how it was back then. I'm sure they shuffled back and forth to town, but they had to stay in the ship. And they wanted as much comfort as possible. Again, and they want that, well, that's their job, delivering cargo. But notice what it says. It says, enough that we might make it. I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot of confidence. Well, we might make it there. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there at a chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. So remember, they ran into poor sailing weather already, so they're behind schedule. They're not where they want to be. They don't like the harbor they're at. So now they're saying, well, maybe we should chance it. And Crete, from where they're at, is only a one-day sail, if it's good weather, 40 miles it was about. But they asked the majority, and they decided, let's sail on. It's only one day. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor, anchor and sailed along Crete close to shore. So they waited for the right weather, the white, right wind, and they said, let's go. Perfect day, and they took the chance. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And the Northeaster on the Mediterranean will turn that sea to a death trap in an instant when the vessel gets caught up in it. I've seen out on Lake Michigan, we used to go out there and we didn't have radar, we didn't have the CB radios, but when all the ships and all the boats around us made a beeline for shore, we made a beeline for shore because we knew a storm was coming. And it's amazing how a perfectly calm sea can turn so rough so quick. Now, before I go on, I'm going to mention a historian, a guy named Foxwall Albright, an archaeologist. 
In his era, he was considered the Einstein of archaeology. He was the first guy to examine the Dead Sea Scrolls. Toward his later writings, toward the end of his life, he chastised the other archaeologists severely concerning how they interpreted scriptural archaeology. You see, there's certain rules and regulations you follow to verify the truth of objects found, verify the truth of writings. And these archaeologists would stick to those rules until it came to biblical context. And they'd throw the rules out the window and would just speculate, well, this might have happened, this might have happened. What they were doing is trying to take away credit from the scriptural writings from the Bible. I bring this up for twofold reasons. One, we have an evidential faith. Our faith is based on evidence because it's true. It's documented through history, through archaeology. We do not go through life with a blind faith. We have an evidential faith. The evidence is all around us. We have creation. It says creation cries out day and night, the evidence for God. General revelation. And also, as we continue on in this narrative, this narrative is written by Luke. He is not a sailor. But when we go on, what he writes, this Foxwell Albright says, is exactly what is proven throughout history, is what every sailor or captain would do under the same circumstances try to save the ship. It just attests to the accuracy of the scriptures, even in details. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. That means when the headwind got so strong that they couldn't tack to keep going where they were. That means go back and forth and make a little bit. They just let the ship turn around and let the wind take it. Running under the lee of a small island called Quada, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Again, this is a large ship. Later on, we'll see it has 276 people on it. So when they'd come into harbor, they'd have a small boat. We'd call them lifeboats for the most part. They were just uh, boats that they used for shuttling people back and forth to the ships. And that boat, normally on good sailing, would just be towed behind the ship. But now because of the storm, they decide, let's hoist this boat onto the bigger ship so we don't lose it. And they ran on the lee side of a small island, so they had a little break from the heaviest storms. So they used that advantage to put that ship on deck, exactly what every other captain would do under the circumstances. So they did catch a little break, and they hoisted that up, 
After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And what they would do is they would take cables and get them around the hull of the ship and tie them up to strengthen the hull. Again, this is what all other captains would do under these circumstances to try and save the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. So finally, they just dropped the sails, and now the winds got complete control of this ship. They have no control of this ship at all, and they're just letting it run along. But they're trying to slow it down by not having a sail up. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Now they're lightening the ship. This ship would have different cargo. A lot of it would be stored on top of the deck. The grain would be stored below, keep dry. So now they're tossing their profit into the sea doing everything they can to lighten the ship, to keep the ship from being too top-heavy and capsized. Again, the historians say this is what sea captains have done all through the world under these circumstances. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now it's really getting serious. They're throwing over the extra tackle, the sails, the extra tackle, the pulleys, the ropes that aren't in use. They're taking and throwing that overboard. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Again, later on, we'll we'll see that this storm lasted 14 days. That's not a regular storm, but it's not unusual to have a storm if you're caught up in it to be carried across the Mediterranean for that amount of time. But now they've lost all hope. The ship's probably been taken on water. And the men are giving up hope of surviving Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Paul's encouraging them. Earlier it seems like he's chastising them. But I think what he says in verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I don't think he was rubbing it in. I think Paul was getting up to set them up for the encouraging words. 
that an angel came to me. My God sent an angel to me, and nobody will be lost. And now he is speaking with divine intervention. He wants these men to have peace, but also he wants them to know the power of his God. Paul is so composed in this dire situation because God told him, you will go to Rome. You will stand before Caesar. But notice it says, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Just think of that. That's for all believers, for us here. We are God's possession. He is our keeper. We will not be harmed unless God allows it. Jesus tells us he will not lose any that the Father gives to him. The only reason we're saved is because God the Father gave us to Jesus. And Jesus said, I will not lose any that the Father has given me. We are protected by God. And Acts 17.27 tells us that they should seek God. This is when he's speaking in Athens. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul believes in the promises of God. That nothing will separate us from God's love. That God's word will always come forth as it is in the scriptures. God is with him. And when we know that the evil around us, the wicked, can plan They can try to deceive. They can try to get rid of us. It's only by the will of God if God allows it. God is our protector. I think it was Stonewall Jackson in battle. They wondered why he was so brave. He said, I'm as comfortable in the battlefield as I am in my own bed. Because God is my keeper. This is paraphrasing. If he wants me to die, I will die. He said, if he wants me to live, no one will hit me with a bullet, no matter how many are fired at me. Our lives are in his hands. And then he also added, I wish all men believed this because that would give them courage. 
that would give them courage. I know one of my friends was in Vietnam, and he was a little guy, and he was a tunnel rat going in the tunnels. He said he could have sent some of his men, but he just didn't have the heart to send people where he wouldn't go himself. Crawling in there, knowing the enemy will be shooting at him. There's mines or booby traps and stuff. Why he wasn't shot, he says, I don't know, but it must be God. We must have courage as believers. We cannot be cowards. Our faith must be open and public. We cannot be cowards. We are forbidden to be cowards. In Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If we're cowards in our lives and in our faith, we're put in the category of murderers, sexual immorals, idolaters. We must be people of courage because we must believe that God is our keeper. Our days are numbered. We cannot add or detract from them. Our time of departure from this earth is already set. We don't need to worry about it. God is our protector. And then Paul continued and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. This is what Jesus told Paul. That's why. He was so confident that his life would be saved. And behold, God has granted you, all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. If you remember one thing from a sermon, remember this. When you're brave in your faith, when you're living out your faith, you are a blessing even to the lost. They benefit just from your faith. Nations benefit from believers living among the nations, among the people. We must live out our faith. We must be the culture carriers. Our faith is not to be kept in the church. It's not just to be kept in our heart. It is to be shared, and we are to influence every area of life. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We as believers have the answers to life and life's problems, even our nation's problems. 
But we must not be cowards. We must stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And pray that the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and guidance to discern the truth. And we should raise up our children, teaching them that all things belong to God. Any avenue of life that they go into, they are to do it for the glory of God and be the best at what they can do and influence others around them. We have an evidential faith. It is a true faith. The rest is a lie, and that's why we see our society crumbling. When you live on a lie, when they can't even tell the difference between a man and a woman anymore, or you can be changed if you want to, or a furry, it's ridiculous. We must stand for the truth. And yes, they will rate rail at you, they will howl at you, but they do not have the answers. Nations that love the Lord and are influenced by the Lord throughout history have been proven to prosper. And those who stray from his word, the further and further they stray, they stray right toward destruction. Now we will have difficulties We will have trials, but the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns it all. We are his ambassadors. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty phantoms. A little further, and they took a sounding again, they found 15 phantoms. You know, here we see the experiences that men have when they're gifted in their tasks. These sailors could sense that the depth or the waves were changing. You know, it said the the historian said the Polynesians could go from island to island thousands of miles away because they could read the different waves and they could go and find that exact island. When men are trained at their skill, skills, they feel things in their hands, their bodies that they can't even explain. You look at a skilled artist, something that you could never sculpt or paint. Yet those drawings flow out of their fingers just like nothing. It's amazing. God gives us many gifts. But here they checked 20 phantoms is 120 feet. A little while later, it's 90 feet. They know that they're heading toward shore, getting close to a reef, that the end will be coming soon for that ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Again, exactly what sailors would do under the same circumstance. But all four anchors at the back of the ship to try and hold it and pray for daylight. It's always worse when catastrophes happen at night. 
or equipment breaks down at night. You've got to fix it even now with them, headlights or flashlights. Far more difficult. They didn't want the ship to break up at night. But also notice, these guys were now praying. Even the greatest atheist will find someone or something to pray to when their life is on the line. When they come to the end of themselves and they know that their efforts aren't going to save them, they'll pray to something. Because they know deep down there is a God. They may repress the truth, they may suppress it, but again, go back to nature. It says the nature declares the glory of God. Day and night, men see it. They can suppress the truth, but when they're about to die, they'll be looking for a solution. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So a couple of these guys were pretending to put the anchors out, and really they were lowering the lifeboat trying to get out of there. Paul catches them, but now the centurion is listening to Paul. They're believing Paul. They cut the boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Can you imagine that 14 days being tossed around, seasick so bad that you can't even eat? I know my dad said, I don't know if it was coming back across the ocean from World War II or going to. He said it was rough seas and it took him eight days. And he said it's uh, not a fun thing throwing up for eight days straight, even though you don't eat anything. But notice the complete faith Paul has. And now he's passing on comfort. He's a blessing to the people around him. You know, our light shines darkest or brightest when we're in the darkest places. In the most dire circumstances, when our lives or other people's lives seem like shipwrecks, our words of encouragement and blessing and surety and the comfort they see in us will draw men to our God. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, the, all, he broke it and began to eat. When they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves, we were all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they're listening to Paul. Paul didn't do the Lord's Supper here. He wasn't with a bunch of believers. He prayed over his meal. 
praying over your meal, no matter where you are, is part of Christian courage. I have brothers and sisters, friends that are non-believers. When they come to my house or I go to their house, they know I'm going to pray over the meal. They expect it. Praying in a restaurant will convict others. They'll wonder why. Why would someone do that? With one stranger one time, and I said, I'm going to pray over the meal. They said that's the first time anybody prayed over a meal. This person was about 35 years old that they were in the presence of. I just said, I thank God for all the blessings we get. Let your light shine. Let your salt be sprinkled wherever you can. You don't know how powerful that one little grain of salt is when God blesses it and uses it to convict people of sin. The sin of neglecting him. But now they're throwing the valuable wheat overboard. They're emptying the hull of the ship. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship aground. So they go, hey, man, there's a soft spot. We can miss the reef. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosened the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Again, they're they're doing exactly what other captains would do under these circumstances. They tried taking control of the ship again by raising the front sail, untying the rudder so they could move the rudder back and forth and try to hit the beach, but they missed. And once the ship is stuck, and the power of the waves beat on it. Ships can be destroyed. Even the largest vessels we have today, when they run aground, they usually break up. Even these steel-hulled ships, the power of the waves are that powerful. I go out on the pier on Sheboygan, and the blocks of concrete are about as big as this area up here. And where the blocks come together, they took a grinder and they grind a line between the two blocks. And even on little puny Lake Michigan, you go in there year after, you're in and you're out, and you look at where those lines once were, and instead of being perfectly lined up, some of them will be a foot, some of them a foot and a half. The waves push those concrete blocks that far. 
power is unbelievable. But we see exactly what God says. They make it to shore. They don't kill Paul, the centurion, for Paul's sake. Again, Paul was a blessing to all the other prisoners. This guy, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, the punishment of escaped prisoners would fall on those guarding them. But it says, but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He wants to save Paul, but he saved all the other prisoners because of the sake of Paul. We are a blessing to the people. Again, they cut the anchor, missed the beach, hit the reef, but all of them made it to shore. Just as Paul told them, the angel had told them would happen. Our God keeps his promises. Our God protects his people. There isn't anything that will take us out unless it is our time to go. Because as they build a fire later on, next time I preach, you'll see Paul carrying sticks, puts them in the fire, and there's a deadly serpent in there and bites them. He shakes it off into the fire and keeps right on going. God doesn't want to poison this snake to even kill you. It won't. What have we learned from this? We must be courageous people. It is a sin not to be a courageous Christian. Sitting in our own little house, our own little faith, our pietistic worldview, which many people have on this, many Christians have in America, is sin. We are to be the culture carrier of a nation. And there is no task too great for the church to achieve when God's people are faithful. And I just pray that it starts with each and every one of us. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, as we see the faithfulness of Paul and how it touched many nations, how it was the beginning of this church, which is continually growing. It is because he trusted in you, proclaimed your truths in season and out. And yes, people will hate you. Some places they will harm you. Some places they will kill Christians. But we are to be brave. Brave for our Lord Jesus Christ and fight his battles. We are the church militant. Teach us to be such a people.